start out with just a little bit of an introduction to um, help us think about the passage this week. I have an image of what the, pa- the practice of law is like. And then I have friends who are actual lawyers. My image of the practice of law is based on media. My son and I just finished reading To Kill a Mockingbird, Atticus Fitch's final closing argument that stirs your soul. I used to enjoy Boston Legal. Denny Crane's thoughts would stir your mind. Who didn't get fired up about Aaron Brockovich's passion in that famous movie? That's how I see lawyering. I appreciate the well-crafted, well-thought-out final argument, closing argument. But then I talk to my real-life lawyers, and it doesn't sound like they get a whole lot of time to do those sorts of things. It's too bad. Uh, There's something to the power of words, inspiring thoughts that are put together in a way that that are meant to convince you, convict you, to, to bring about that final completed thought. Power of words. Especially in matters of life and death. So I want you to imagine then a courtroom drama. It's time for the prosecutor's final argument. Don't think about Perry Mason coming in with some sudden revelation that'll seal the deal. Think instead, everybody who's paid any attention to this at all knows what the final verdict will be already. In this case, the jury is the heavens. They have seen all they need to see. Still, they listen to God's charges in this life and death case. The defendant in this case is Israel, God's children, and the court is the worst kind, family court. And it's the worst kind of case, parent versus children. And so the prosecutor, God, begins. What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives? I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more, I accuse you, says the Lord. I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coast of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. 
Has a nation changed its gods? Even though they are no gods. But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now that closing argument could be in a movie. The defense has no defense. Israel left God without cause. They went after nothing and became it. You become what you seek after. They forgot God's story and God's mercy. They did not appreciate God's gifts or take care of Him. They did not seek after the Lord. They spoke more about the law than they did with God. They transgressed. They prophesied for a false god. They went after worthless things. About the only thing they are not accused of is changing their name. And you can imagine there were times when God wished that they had. Who leaves a parent? Who leaves the God who has done so much for them God wants to know? Go to the ends of the earth, from the east to the west. That's this Cyprus and Kedar business. Go as far as you can go and see that you will find people there who are more loyal to a God who does not exist than God's children are to the God who does exist. God complains. God charges. Serious. He summarizes them this way. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and they have dug out cisterns for themselves, cisterns that cannot hold water. This is Middle Eastern imagery. It's hard for us to imagine, and we don't use analogies like this because of where we live and when we live. We can pull a handle and water comes out. Some of us program a machine and all of a sudden our yards get watered every time it turns on. If we're thirsty, there's water fountain available, water bottles, water supplements. We live as though we have all the water we need. It takes not having water to appreciate it. Spend some time in another country holding your breath in the shower for fear that one little drop of water might get into your mouth and then ruin the next few days of your life. And you'll appreciate the water we have. Go to places where soft drinks cost less than water, and you'll appreciate the water we have. When the land is dry and cracked because it has been months since the last rain, you'll appreciate our abundant water. People in the Middle East appreciate any water. And so they've developed these systems to collect the water they have whenever it does rain because they know it'll be a good bit of time before the next time it does And into that world, God is saying, look, you have access to living water, to a fountain of living water, living water, not stagnant water, not depleting water sources, not evaporating water. I am living 
Think about what living water does. It refreshes. It cleanses. It quenches thirst. It's pleasant to hear and to see. You don't have to store it up and worry about rationing it. Living water keeps flowing. Compare that with stagnant water. It sits there until it evaporates. It tastes stale or worse. Things start growing in it. I heard last week that Miami is now fining people who left any stagnant water on their property. Because even water the size of a bottle cap is enough to breed more mosquitoes. God's children had forgotten the fountain of living water readily available to them, and they had chosen instead to put their water in cisterns, in containers. It's like they walked away from a waterfall that was readily giving them all the water they needed and instead went to a man-made pond with water that had no life. God had given them everything they needed, everything they could want, and instead they go about their way, a lesser way, which was really no way. They tried to make cisterns to hold their water, but why? Cisterns crack. And who would want stagnant water when living water is available anyway? It's the same mindset that had Israel chase after worthless things until they became worthless themselves. It's hard to hear, isn't it? God calling God's children worthless. Before you get too bothered, it's not that different than a parent saying to a child, you are what you eat. As a child, that doesn't really add up. child reaches for some cotton candy. The parent says to the child, be careful, you are what you eat. And the child thinks, cool. <laughs> Everybody likes cotton candy. It's fun, it's delicious, I'll have more. Child is, the parent is meaning to say to the child is you can't really sustain quality of life on cotton candy. Eat too much and your stomach will hurt. Eat a little more and your head will start to hurt. Keep eating it and your body will begin to shut down. You will soon be as empty as that tasty treat that you want more of. I know, cotton candy doesn't deserve to be condemned in a sermon. I'm fine with a little cotton candy. God's accusation is not that Israel is actually nothing, but that they were on a course toward it, or being it. They were giving their lives to what amounts to nothing. And we could say, bad Israel, they should have known better. But let's not forget that Jeremiah's in our Bibles too. These are words we need as well. We're as susceptible as was Israel to chase after false gods, to try to create our own water sources rather than enjoy the ones we've been given, to forget God rather than thank and serve God. We could be charged with forsaking the living water and choosing to dig out for ourselves cracked cisterns that hold no water, we could be charged with chasing after nothing until we become too full 
of nothing. So here we sit. Like Israel on trial, awaiting our judgment. But unlike the lawyers on TV or even those in real life, God is not so much worried with proving his case so that we will be found guilty as God is with trying to show us what we're missing so that we'll choose better, so that we'll choose the fullness of life. Every family court is tough because accompanying the disputes over property or irreconcilable differences, or infidelity, or abuse, or neglect, are people. Real people. With real hurts, and real scars. No one leaves family court unscathed, including the prosecutors and the judge. In this case, God the prosecutor is also God the plaintiff. Because God experiences real hurt for himself every time his children chase after things which are not of God. It breaks God's heart to watch us waste our lives. God wants us to not thirst, to not starve. And God has provided abundantly for us to live fullness of life. I try to think of a story of someone who kind of got this, who went from living a life of chasing after nothing to, to living a life that was in the direction of God. But every example I thought of sounded a little too dramatic. Something you could dismiss as not realistic or, or maybe beyond what you could do within this life. The truth is, most of the stories, the kind of stories that, that don't make for good sermon illustrations, or of regular people like you, regular people like me, people who are kind of going down one path, and then something lured them back. Some changes, some decisions, some desire to do a little bit differently, to actually get a little bit towards what significant in life again, that they took a Bible study, Hank, and it started to awaken in them some desire for something more. They started to focus on the basics of our faith, basics of what God asked for. What does the Lord require of you, Micah asked? But to do justice, and to love kindness, Walk humbly with your God. That, and in Jesus' way of summarizing the law, love God, love neighbor, these are the tributaries that lead us back to the fountain, that lead us back to our water source, the source of our living. These are the ways that God gives us to keep us from filling ourselves with cheap fillers that really do not sustain the life we've been called to live. The charges against Israel were that they gave up what was good and life-giving for what was worthless and life-taking. And there was plenty of evidence to convict Israel. In some days, what concerns me 
there's enough evidence to convince us too. But the good news is this is a unique court. A court in which God is the prosecutor and God is the plaintiff, but God is also the judge. And while we create our own punishments by continuing to seek after these cisterns that hold no water, God the judge stands ready to forgive our guilt and fill us with the living water so that we need not go back to those drying up places. So my invitation to us is, where you, where I, need to plead guilty, Whatever pursuits have taken us from the fullness of God, we do so. We throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. And we trust that God's verdict will be gracious and kind. And that when the sentence is rendered, it will be life abundant. May God make it so.